0: You're listening to Growl. Hey, listener. It's the Mongrel, a.k.a. JV, here. If you support the music, news, and commentary that you hear on Radio Free Berkshires and read in the Greylock Glass... I want you to know that we are so grateful. Your generosity is what keeps this independent media pirate ship sailing. Now, if you aren't a contributor yet, be one of the first to set up a monthly contribution at our new support page at patreon.com slash Greylock Glass. That's Greylock, G-R-E-Y-L-O-C-K-G-L-A-S-S. Or write on our website at greylockglass.com slash membership. The thing is, no matter what happens after Election Day, fearless journalism is only going to become more and more important. Help us bring it to you, and thanks. And you are listening to episode number seven of Growl, right here on Radio Free Berkshires. I'm your host, the mongrel. Welcome. Big D Democrats are locked up in a twisted love triangle. The Democratic voter gets a a peck on the cheek once, maybe twice, during a a presidential administration fronted by their wind-up toy. And for that little bit of, of liberal affection, they're supposed to overlook dodgy election practices, generational ineptitude, and torrid, truly torrid transactional relationships with the very businesses and industries responsible for exactly the human and environmental crises that these voters say they care about in poll after poll. Now, when Democratic power players get caught trying to sneak in at sunrise, smelling like motel soap, instead of evincing the appropriate hangdog contrition, they blow up. They blow up in a rage. Go vote for the other guy if you don't like it. You think you're abused now. You just wait and see what happens if you even consider leaving. I'm not coming home straight after work with a box of chocolates and a long stem rose. Not as long as there are still all-night orgies of money and power and sleaze. So you better get used to it. You run up to your room and pack your bags if you think you need to make your point. But really, where are you going to go? Who are you going to run to? And that's where we are. The DNC refuses to include any meaningful platform planks that would provide the the relief that a majority of their base supports. No Medicare for all. No Green New Deal. No realistic minimum wage. No sensible subsidy for college education. In other words, nothing that every other developed Western nation has decided that the government has an obligation to provide. We have, in Joe Biden, a presidential candidate who, on multiple occasions, has told voters with earnest concerns that they should go vote for Donald Trump. A would-be abuser-in-chief with decades-long history of lying, unsavory relationships with banking and business, demonstrated racism, creepy behavior, and a hot temper that's somehow both impotent and disturbing at the same time. That's who's on the ballot on the DNC ticket. Biden isn't an imperfect candidate. He isn't even just a flawed human being. He is a dumpster fire straddling a double set of train tracks at a crossing with a busted bell and flasher. He was born to lose this election in a double-digit disgrace. And if he does, the DNC still isn't going to show up at the doorstep with its hat in hand and some daisies in the other. No, no. It's going to lash out and give its progressive wing a shiner that will spread across the entire left side of its face. You didn't work hard enough to get out the vote, they'll say. And then, of course, simple arithmetic and electoral college reality be damned, they'll point the finger at their preferred ready-made enemy who will be forced to wear a scarlet letter for four years, the third-party voter. Make no mistake, Donald Trump must be defeated this election in a fashion that is way, way beyond question, beyond even the suspicions of all but the most rabid maggotrogs. While it can be argued that the greedy and seedy dealings of the DNC are leading the planet and the human race slowly to disaster, the GOP seems hell-bent on setting the controls for the heart of Armageddon and pushing the big red candy-like hyperdrive button. Given the evangelical death cult flank of the Republican electorate, reservations for the big A apocalypse might actually be part of the GOP platform, the part written with invisible blood ink. So yeah, if you look up the word existential, you'll just see the date, November 3rd, 2020. And yeah, Trump must be denied a second term or this nation risks tearing itself apart at the seams. But even if, by some stroke of luck, Biden does get sworn in next January, a four-year-old elephant is still crashing around in the room. Since May of 2016, what has become crystal clear is that the Democratic Party is no place for any self-respecting progressive to remain the DNC annexed the coherent, less froth-of-the-mouth portion of the grand old party of the 1990s and has become increasingly inhospitable to anyone looking for fundamental change in climate policy, income inequality, systemic racism, financial regulation, or many of the other areas uh, suffering social decay and institutional erosion. Biden said as much to a room full of power brokers when he assured them that nothing will fundamentally change and so if a coalition of center and left voters do defeat trump and it really will be the voters who who beat him in spite of the biden campaign's incompetence after the voters defeat trump it will be time for exit stage left bugs bunny style progressives need to say goodbye to the Big D Democrats once and for all and do the unthinkable. Throw their support fully behind the one national party that has the infrastructure and the experience to at least make its voice heard occasionally above the two-party professional wrestling match that we've got now. And I'm talking, of course, about the Green Party. Centrist corporate Dems tend to hate the Greens more than they do the Republicans. Their visceral reaction to the name's Ralph Nader and Jill Stein, provide the emotional clues as to why. Both are considered spoilers, despite ample mathematical evidence to the contrary as to why the Democrats lost in 2000 and 2016, respectively. But the more deeply-seated, self-interested reason that the Dems would rather play ball with the Republicans is that the two share class interests, welded into the architecture of education, health care, law enforcement, real estate, commerce, and government at every level. Both sides simply have too much to lose to allow even modest progressive change to take hold. People might experience what it feels like not to have the capitalist jackboot on the necks for a while, and they might decide they like it. DNC leaders who, who don't want to come right out and say they're actively against greater societal parity have to laugh off other people's grievances and say that these lovely measures might be nice, but it's, it's like a kid asking for a pony for his birthday. In fact, in her 2017 memoir, How I Had Absolutely Nothing to Offer America, and yet I'm still surprised at how little voter enthusiasm I generated, Hillary Clinton smugly quotes the Facebook post by Helen Stickler that Senator Bernie Sanders' vision of a more just society was akin to giving the U.S. a great, big, unaffordable, pretty pony. Still, remember all those other Western democracies that have found a way to afford it? And despite Clinton's bruising loss, which she blames on pretty much everyone but herself, the message that Americans are ready to start diverting more of the federal budget away from war and intelligence spending and towards health and human services has been utterly lost on the Biden campaign. Creepy Uncle Joe vows to veto Medicare for All even if it gets through the House and Republican controlled Senate. The only presidential candidate in recent memory to be so gobsmackingly out of touch with the concerns of voters was probably George H.W. Bush. And it took years for him to live down the it's the economy, stupid, catchphrase that defined his epic loss to Bill Clinton in 1992. Unfortunately, it's, it's too late in the day to hope for a Biden loss that will teach the DNC the lesson that it's healthcare, stupid. Too much of everything else would burn to the ground while Dems were busy blaming Bernie, the Green Party, the Russians... Julian Assange and hell, probably radio free Berkshires before they're done. Progressives do have the opportunity to do more than just send a message this November, though. Despite aggressive, desperate, and questionable tactics by the Dem committees in several states, including Montana, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, to have Green Party candidates purged from the ballots. Green candidate for president, Howie Hawkins, is running an extremely energetic campaign. His platform? Oh, you know, most of the stuff that registered Democrats say they want. And here's the thing, see. If you happen to live in a state that is nearly guaranteed to hand Joe Biden your electoral votes, you can vote for any candidate without jeopardizing the outcome of the election. And if enough people in solidly blue states around the country, vote for Hawkins, for example, he could very possibly earn 5% of the popular vote, which would qualify the Green Party for matching campaign funds in the next election. Those states that are most likely to vote blue no matter what are California, Washington, Minnesota, Michigan... New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Maryland, and and possibly some other northeastern states. What would a viable Green Party mean for progressive politics? While it might not mean that we'll see a Green White House or congressional majority right away, it would almost certainly mean that the DNC would be forced to accept a coalition with the left and negotiate on platforms in order for their candidates to win the backing of the Green Party. In other words, ratchet up progress on, an, on environmental and social issues to a level well beyond the incrementalism that's been the hallmark of the neoliberal center for more than three decades. Now, I had the good fortune to speak with Howie Hawkins at length earlier in his campaign before he named Angela Walker as his running mate. And while I'm really bummed about not being able to include her perspectives in this program, eh, with any luck, maybe she'll accept an invitation to speak with Growl soon. In the meantime... I hope you'll enjoy this full-length conversation with Howie Hawkins, Green Party candidate for the President of the United States of America. Thank you so much for, for coming on the on the show. First, let's talk a little bit about just simply the the challenge of campaigning during COVID-19. Well, we can't go out and knock on doors, go out on the
1: street in petition, uh, organize gatherings where... People can hear what I'm running on and what I'm about. So it's kind of going back to the 19th century with 21st century technology. Back in the 19th century, you know, the presidential candidates had what they called front porch campaigns. So the newspaper reporters would come up to the house and the presidential candidate would give them the message of the day and it would go out on the telegraph. Uh, And today, well, I can't say that. Networks are, you know, calling me up every day, but we're putting out our message on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, podcasts. We're having uh, house meetings on Zoom. Uh, the Green Parties around the country are having candidate forums on Zoom, and they're they're doing virtual conventions now. So, and also the voting instead of, uh, you know, showing up at a state meeting and casting your vote by as a state committee member. Uh, they're doing it by electronically or by mail, so it's it's changed a lot. Um, the difference is, I'm spending less time traveling and more time, you know, putting out messages. So maybe in the balance, I'll reach more people.
0: Maybe, maybe. Um, so let's uh, let's do a little bit of background here. Um, you are now living in in Syracuse. Um, but your dialect belies uh a different uh uh upbringing. Where are you from originally?
1: originally from California, okay, but my neighborhood was uh lots of people whose families had moved up from Mississippi Delta basically Mississippi Louisiana, East Texas, and uh mostly African American but also some white folks and uh you know they come up during World War two and shortly thereafter worked the shipyards. A lot of them worked in the big uh, auto factory in Fremont, California, which was across the San Mateo Bridge. That's where I was, San Mateo. And uh, so I speak like the kids I came up with. So, you know, people say you don't have a California accent. Well, if you go around California, you'll find all kinds of accents.
0: Sure. I lived in Northern California, in uh, just north of Santa Cruz for a while, uh, in a town called Boulder Creek, which has a a high scottish influence uh the scotsmen came during the the gold rush and uh they stayed a lot of them stayed and so there's this odd little pocket of of a sort of a scottish brogue uh, in the in the in the mountains in uh, the santa cruz mountains an odd thing uh, to run across um and you came up um in a working class uh both neighborhood and family um, you, uh, you started getting into politics in the year I was born, 1968, um, w- which was <laughs> interestingly a year that we'll probably, we'll, we'll be seeing some echo or hearing some echoes of, uh, this year. But tell me what, um, uh, what was being in the working class like in your youth and in 1968? What did it mean to be working class?
1: Well, my dad was actually after World War II and the GI Bill, he became a lawyer. So we were more middle class, even upper middle class. But, you know, my extended family's working class, you know, cousins, um, all branches in the neighborhood. Um, so, you know, I had a pretty good feel for what was going on. And in the 60s and the 50s, uh, you know, things, people were advancing, you know, you, it was easy to get a job. Uh, wages were going up in concert with productivity. And so, you know, in the early 70s, when I started working, I kind of assumed it would continue that way. And actually, wages have been stagnant since 1973. So very different environment. It took a while to realize that was going on. Um, By the 80s, we could see that, you know, inequality was growing, and it's continued to grow right up to this day, to the point where working class life expectancies are now declining in this country. And that's due to economic despair. There's a lot of Uh, literature out there now about uh, deaths of despair, particularly among the white working class whose expectations have been dashed. And, uh, you know, in Rust Belt, where I'm in Syracuse, New York, one of those Rust Belt cities, and the factories closed, moved overseas, China, Mexico. Um, And then in uh, the African-American community, uh, there's a sense of hopelessness. There's a, a rising Rate of suicides among young African Americans, particularly young men. So, very different kind of uh, feeling, you know. In the in the 60s, it was, uh, you know, we may not be rich, but we're getting ahead. Today, it's like, are we
0: even going to be able to stay in our house? Well, my father got out of the Air Force, and he uh, he went, uh, he went, uh, he tried to get a uh, career in trucking, and he actually was on his way to having his own rig. He was going to work as a, a gypsy trucker. <clears throat> but uh, after my older brother was born, um, my mama said, uh, no, Joe, you're coming home. <laughs> you're coming home and you're staying home. And he got a job in the factories. Um, you know, he would typically, you know, he started off on the line, on a machine, maybe a punch press or something like that. And because he's sharper than the average bear and he works a whole lot harder than the average bear, uh he managed to move up to... Uh, a lead man position a foreman position and then a sort of an assistant shop superintendent position and he went up 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 over the next 20 some 20 30 years and he was able to eventually provide a decent standard of living um in the 90s the early 90s when i was living in california I worked for a technology company, a computer disk drive company in uh, Scotts Valley, and uh, I remember the day they announced that uh, we were all getting laid off, and uh, actually three different companies laid off on the same Friday. It was Bloodbath, and most of our jobs at at this company were moving to, to Thailand. Um, They're moving to Thailand, and they were never going to come back, and I realized, wow, um, if that can happen here in the California, you know, Silicon Valley boom time, uh, something big is is underfoot. Now, we didn't realize, of course, at the time, exactly what shift was about to occur, but... Certainly, in hindsight, you see it, and you probably had a better perspective even then. So tell me, between 1973 and the time that I got laid off in 1993, what happened to the American dream?
1: Well, in 1973, there was a, a memo from uh, Lewis Powell. This is about 1970, to the American Chamber of Commerce uh, and influenced the Nixon administration, And Lewis Powell said, uh, things are getting out of hand for business. You know, now instead of bringing together a few corporate leaders, the president and the cabinet and a few military leaders and running the country, we got to deal with black folks and women and environmentalists. And, you know, they're questioning our war in Vietnam. So, you know, the military doesn't have a free hand. And so he said, business has got to get itself organized and take the offensive. And his biggest villain in that memo was Ralph Nader, who, you know, was advocating for consumers and workers and being very effective in Congress. I mean, Ralph would, you know, find a problem. He'd call a congressman and there'd be a hearing and, you know, Congress would move on it. Back then, the two parties had both uh, liberal and conservative wings. So it was more like a four-party system. So the coalitions were always shifting and Congress functioned. Today, you know, they're ideologically split. They don't trust each other. In a deadlock, it's a zero-sum game. It's all negative in terms of what we see. Behind the scenes, they kind of agree on the economic and military policies, but they're not solving problems at all. You know, we have basic problems. Well, basic problems and also life or death issues, like the climate, like inequality, as I described, inequality kills. And we have a new nuclear arms race, and we're about to get out of the last bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia on strategic arms that expires next February 5th. And I'm the only presidential candidate talking about that and what we should be doing about that. So I have some nuclear disarmament initiatives. So um, what happened in the early 70s was business went on the offensive. The Business Roundtable formed and then the Trilateral Commission formed, and they got really organized and really emphasized lobbying and uh, getting more involved in political campaigns and put out the argument that uh, we needed to have public austerity. And they started implementing that under Carter and accelerated that under Reagan and sort of completed that under Clinton, who was able to get through some last things like these corporate managed trade agreements, NAFTA, uh, you know, uh, bringing uh, China into the World Trade Organization and uh, other treaties like that, which facilitated the uh, outsourcing of a lot of jobs. So there's this whole, uh, you know, continuous what they today call neoliberalism, which is supposed to hark back to the old laissez-faire, you know, let the market take its, uh, you know, do what it will. But it's really laissez-faire for the working class and state support for the business and banking elites. Funny that. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, there are lots of corporate subsidies. We saw that with the Great Recession. Banks got bailed out. We got sold out. You know, that was the slogan from Occupy. And uh, so it's it's been a continuous process that continues right up to this day. And then, you know, you look at the structure of capitalism. I mean, it has a chronic problem of overproduction, excess capacity. And once it's built out like we did after World War II, uh, you know, in Europe and Japan, they rebuilt their manufacturing in this country. We built out suburbia and then it kind of reached its uh, where, you know, that demand was satisfied. So what are you going to invest in if you have... Uh, profits and what they started doing was financial investments instead of productive investments and in order to keep the economy afloat they extended credit to workers and then you know they in the financial uh field they would borrow money to invest in various financial instruments and so and that corporations bonded particularly in the last 10 years with the low interest rates so now we have enormous debt and uh you know, with the coronavirus depression, the Fed has opened the floodgates and they're, you know, uh putting the money into the stock market, which is starting to come back, you know, because that extra credit can go back into the uh stocks and bonds because they're not investing in new productive capacity because right now demand is low. And when we do get out of this coronavirus depression, uh where's the demand going to be? Because people Depending on what the federal government does to help people, but people will be ha- behind on their bills. Um, they're going to be paying, you know, utility bills and rent bills and mortgages, and not going out and, and buying goods and services that they they would if they weren't uh, in debt. So that's what we call stagnation. So even before this coronavirus depression, we were on the verge. Trump made it much worse. He again, you know, those tax cuts put money in the, you know, elites, and it's supposed to trickle down in their theory, but it never does. And, uh, you know, demand from the working class was reduced. And so the economy was headed towards stagnation. And when that happens, then those debts come due and uh, you can have a financial collapse. Mm. So we're these gonna...
0: are all structural problems that have been developing, really, over the last 45 years. So let's go back. Let's go back to uh, you mentioned trickle down economics. And, and I think I first heard that term. I, I know it's been around longer, but I, I first heard the term in the 80s, you know, under Reagan. And Reaganomics. Um, tell me, when did the when was the the genesis of the Green Party, and was it in response? Um, I know that there's a, a very solid ecological um, push uh, that to, to sort of generated the, the Green Party, but um, but I know that there was also a um, an economic uh, aspect to the Green Party's genesis. Tell us about where it where it got started. Well.
1: After the German Greens elected, I think it was 35 members to their Bundestag, which is their you know, House of Representatives equivalent, people around the world said, oh, maybe that's the new politics we need. The old left was kind of stagnant. You know, The communists were supporting the Soviet bloc, the Social Democrats were supporting NATO and the Western bloc, and we had this Cold War, and there were people that didn't want to ally with either side. Particularly another issue besides the environmental problems that were mounting was the nuclear uh, arms, particularly the uh, intermediate range missiles in Europe, which were, uh, you know, practically touching each other, you know, across the German border, across the border between the East Bloc and the West. And so that was a huge issue. Um, and then nuclear power, there was a big anti-nuclear power movement in, in Germany. And in fact, you know, I helped organize the clamshell alliance where we occupied the Seabrook nuclear power plant site in 1977. We got inspiration from an occupation done by Germans at Ville, uh to stop a nuclear power plant there. So there were a lot of environmental, uh, peace-oriented, and—yeah, uh, well, those were the two major issues. And of course, the women's movement, the new social movements, decolonization, uh, dealing with uh, the issue of racism. So it wasn't uh, so much focused at that time on the class issues that the old left was focused on. So the Greens, I see them as the electoral expression of the New Left of the 60s, which was addressing these new issues, and uh, of course the economic issues were part of that. And uh, in fact, I was skeptical about getting involved in the Greens. Uh, Murray Bookchin, who was known as an anarchist then, a libertarian socialist, you know, was urging me to get involved, and I was saying, you know, it just looks like environmentalists. What about capitalism? And then uh, the first economic program from the German Greens. Uh, you know, was a was a oriented toward a socialistic type of approach. And one of the slogans I remember is we need a fair distribution of working income because with productivity going up, some people had jobs and were doing good, but more people were becoming unemployed and didn't have income. So that, I thought, was, you know, a good way of posing the question. So when we got there to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, that was the first meeting. I was invited. Well, they invited the clamshell lines to send a couple people, and I was one of the two people. Um, and... It that We were oriented on the same, you know, social and environmental issues, not so much the economic issues, although that was part of the background. We were coming out of the Reagan uh, recession and uh, inequality was growing. We could see that. Uh, but the issue there was really strategy. You know, if we're going to build an alternative political movement, how do we do that? And the message I brought and, and, and the group adopted was, you know, I had... Supported the Peace and Freedom Party in 1968, the People's Party in 72 and 76, and the Citizens Party, which ran the environmental scientist Barry Commoner for president in 1980. And all of those efforts did not build out a real party. So my argument was, we got to build this from the bottom up. And instead of you know running people for federal office, we should start organizing local groups and start at the local level in, in terms of electoral politics when we were ready. And we did that over the next dozen years. And so in 1996, when Ralph Nader let us use his name to put on ballots, he didn't run an active campaign, we got on the ballots of about, well, over 30 states. I forget the exact number, I think it was 33. And um, that showed that we did have a base that could get some things done. So that's uh, that's what we were thinking about in 1984. It was the, the social and environmental issues more than the economic issues, but uh, the economic issues have, you know, kept thrusting themselves forward over the subsequent decades.
0: Well, there's, yeah, uh, you can't really untangle most of these. You know, I mean, when you talk about racial justice, you're talking about, you know, you know, gender justice. When you're talking about gender justice, you're talking about workers' justice. And it just, you know, they're so inextricable. Um, so... <laughs> Not to make this a history class in the Green Party, but um, when Ralph Nader ran, um, what, what was the hope? I mean, I don't think anybody necessarily expected him to win, but what was the hope and what has been the hope ever since the first time he ran?
1: Well, I I know Ralph pretty good, and you know, he went back in the 60s and 70s, he wasn't thinking about running for office, he was a public citizen. He was bringing issues to Congress and making them deal with them. And with the Carter administration, that started to stop. And with the business offensive Congress, uh, you know, there was a change in the Democratic Party. It was a coalition, the New Deal coalition, depended a lot on labor and delivering these New Deal, Great Society type programs. And I can remember a guy, actually, I worked with. He, we both went to the same college, Dartmouth College. It was Paul Songus from Massachusetts. And I had worked with him on uh, divestment. He had been Peace Corps, I think, in Angola. He understood Southern Africa. And he was helping us try to get Dartmouth College to divest. And so I'd worked with him on that. But then, I think it was about 1978, he uh, gave a speech at Dartmouth. And he said, and, and he was given this around the country, along with people like Gary Hart, and what they called the neoliberals back then. And he said, look, the Democrats, we got the environmentalists, the peace activists, the women, the blacks, um, labor, and all we have to do now is give business something, and we got everything. And it's a winning coalition. And of course, business took over, and the New Deal coalition was dead. And uh, I think that's what was going on uh, from that time on in the Democratic Party. And uh, so.
0: I got off on the thread. What was the question? Well, I think um, the the, uh, the hope, there were some hopes uh, of oh. of getting, you know, even- The, it,
1: the Nader campaign. Yeah. So yeah,
0: Ralph realized, you know, he was shut out.
1: And so he actually went up and, and campaigned in the New Hampshire primary in 1972, telling people to campaign for none of the above. That was kind of tipping his toe in. And then in 96, he let's use his name. In 2000, he really ran. And at that point, the hope was uh, we could force issues into the national debate. That uh, campaign was on the heels of the uh, global justice movement. We had the battle in Seattle. And, you know, there's a movement behind this effort, and, and Ralph became its spokesperson. And uh, unfortunately, after 9 11, that movement just kind of went into hiding because people were scared. Um, but, um, so that was the purpose. And the other outcome of that election was the Democrats lost. It was a close election in Florida. And instead of blaming the Electoral College and the Supreme Court, they pick on the Greens. And basically, ever since then, they say, go away. You're spoiling the election. And I think I can justly say at this point, 20 years later, no, the Democrats were spoiling the election because we should have had a campaign to abolish the Electoral College and do a ranked choice national popular vote for president. And in the spoiler issue wouldn't be a problem. And they haven't picked it up.
0: So Of course, not. We know it, hmm? of course not.
1: Yeah, well, you you would think the last two Republicans were first elected by losing the popular vote. You know, Trump is a loser. He doesn't like to know that, but he lost the vote by three million votes. But the electoral college put him in office. In two thousand, Gore actually won. Even you know, in Florida, the media went back and recounted all the ballots in every which way war won by a, a narrow margin. But it was the Supreme Court that said, stop the recount, Bush is president. And this decision is not a precedent for anything going forward. I mean it was the most bizarre, uh, legally, you know, questionable decision ever made, but there was a Republican majority in the court and they gave it to George Bush. You know, and they won't pick on the Greens. You know, let's deal with the real issue. It's the Electoral College. Yeah. You know, now to claim the twenty sixteen election on Russian interference. Whatever the Russians did, they didn't impose the Electoral College on us. You know, So I think this is an idea whose time has come. We've got over 20 cities with instant runoff voting. Maine now uses it for elections, including uh, the election of the presidential electors in 2020. And people say, well, you got to change the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College. Well, guess what? The last amendment uh, stood around for 20 years. It was part of the original uh, 12 amendments and the original Bill of Rights from Madison. And it's the amendment that said Congress can't raise its own pay uh, in its current term. and has to wait for a new election. And it swept through the states in the 1980s. It was an idea whose time has come. And I think ranked choice voting is an idea whose time has come. And I hope, you know, the campaign I'm running can uh, put that forward. And, you know, that that amendment passed, it was a college student in Texas that just made it his, his mission. He got a C writing why that amendment should pass in, in a paper. And... Uh, he started writing members of congress and state you know officials and got it moving and uh he got the amendment and so that professor you know years later uh went back and gave him an A on his paper officially
0: we're going to get into your your platform in a minute um but uh i i do want to acknowledge that yes um first Ralph Nader then Jill Stein uh, along with the Russians uh, spoiled uh, the the last uh, elections that the that the Democrats lost when they win uh, it's to their credit when they lost when they lose it's it's somebody else's fault um, Ted Rawl a writer and political cartoonist um, wrote this week that the Democratic Party is where the American left goes to die um, and others have been pointing out that the Democratic Party party um ever since bill clinton's third way democrat big d democrat um mission there just hasn't been room for progressives there hasn't been room for uh criminal justice reform there hasn't been room for environmental reform or at least very very moderate very measured reform um there hasn't really been room for um any sort of labor, um, you know, labor uh, reform. Um, So it does seem uh, that to try to get change through Congress, through the Democratic Party, when the Democratic Party doesn't really seem to be making any room um, for the progressive, what you you said, there used to be a progressive wing, um, it seems... Doomed, uh, even some of what are known as the Justice Democrats, um, who were elected in 2018, uh, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she started, she ran on a platform that included things like a peace, she had a peace platform, she had a net neutrality, um, you know, stance, Um, those are gone from her current platform so she no longer has listed anywhere on her website that i can find any sort of a peace um policy and i'm wondering if there is in fact is this the time that the that the dnc has lost progressives for good uh, especially with the the uh the announcement 2 days ago from uh bernie sanders that he was suspending his campaign has the democrat The Democratic Party lost the progressive wing for good.
1: Well, Ted Rawl is right, and it goes back uh, before Clinton. I'd say it goes back to 1896 when the People's Party cross-endorsed William Jennings Bryant, a phony populist, and committed political suicide. And the radicals in the populist movement regrouped and formed the Socialist Party, which did act as an independent party. Socialism was part of the discussion. And then in the 30s, the communists, which were growing and had a policy of a popular front against fascism, which meant aligned with the liberal capitalists, so they got into the New Deal coalition and led the left into the Democratic Party. And that part of the left never left the Democratic Party and disappeared as a distinct alternative with its own identity, its own voice, its own message. And then the Socialist Party followed suit in the 50s and 60s with what they called the realignment strategy, which was uh, kick the Dixiecrats out and the Democrats will become a European-style social democratic party. But what happened was the Dixiecrats went to the Republicans, they got the realignment, but without a left, uh, like I was saying with Songus, they could take their progressives for granted and uh, you know, pander to business for campaign donations, which is another thing that Democrats really moved strong on in the 70s with these neoliberals, going after corporate funding. And then, uh, you know, you had Jesse Jackson brought in one segment of the New Left, mostly the Maoist-oriented groups into the Democratic Party. Uh, And now with Bernie Sanders, even groups that stayed independent, more out of the Trotskyist tradition and and socialism, a lot of them went into the Democratic Party with Sanders. So there's a, you know, over 100-year history there. Now, there still is a progressive wing, but, you know, the way the dominant corporate wing, I think, looks at it is, yeah, let the progressives give speeches. They draw progressives into the party, but we make the decisions, us corporate Democrats. So the progressives get to make speeches, and the corporate Democrats make decisions. So you mentioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She took the Green New Deal from the uh, the Green Party. I was the first candidate in the country to run on it, running for governor in 2010 in New York, and it became the signature issue of the Green Party. Uh, We kept running on it in New York. Uh, People ran it on across the country, Jill Stein, it was the theme of her 2012 and 2016 campaigns. And so, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sitting in Pelosi's office with the Sunrise Movement right after the 2018 election, uh, the media ate that up and it went viral. And the people like it. I mean, even 64% of Republicans were polled a month later and they were for it. And over 80% of the Americans were for it. But what happened to it? Well, originally they wanted a select committee on a Green New Deal that could put legislation right on the House floor. And Pelosi sliced, diced, and threw that down to disposal. So they came back after uh, the first of the year and in, in the first session of Congress with the non-binding resolution on a Green New Deal, which took our brand Green New Deal and diluted the content. So they left out the ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure. They left out the phase out of nuclear power. They left out the deep cuts in military spending in order to help fund the Green New Deal. And they extended the deadline to get to zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions from 2030 to 2050. And even with that watered down version, Pelosi's never let the House vote on it. And then McConnell said, well, half you senators are running for president. Let's get you on the record. And so they did vote in the Senate. And Schumer, the leader of the Democrats, said, oh, this is a trick. We're all voting president. And all the good, obedient Democrats did, except four of them voted with the Republicans against it. So Ted Rawl is right. Uh, You go into the Democratic Party, that's where progressive ideas and progressives. Go to die. Uh, they're not going to give us Medicare for all. Bill, Joe Biden's made that clear. You know, he said he'd veto if it crossed his desk. In the last debate with Sanders, he said it was irrelevant to the coronavirus uh, crisis. So, uh, but I'm I'm afraid that there's still a lot of progressive Democrats who are scared stupid by Trump. They think the only thing we can do is vote for anybody but Trump, and so we're not solving any problems. Uh, Now, since I'll just say this, since Sanders uh, said he's suspending his campaign, my campaign has had more money and volunteers come in in the last few days than any uh, time since I announced, uh, you know, at the end of last May. Yeah. So some people are coming, but I don't see a a split. It's not there yet.
0: No, I I, and this is exactly where I was hoping we'd be uh, when we made this uh, this uh, we took this this uh this exit ramp of the conversation to talk about your campaign uh one of the things that's interesting is that when you look at the comments on some of your your facebook videos um the comments section is full of people who say you know former sanders supporter uh interested in the new green uh you know uh, you know same here uh bernie bernie bro looking to find out more about the green party Some of these people clearly have never really heard about the the Green Party before, and and they are looking for something else. Um, I would like to ask you two questions. The first is, um, there are some who say we need some new third party. Um, They're not saying that we should go to to the Greens. Um, So first... I want you to address that question. Do we need another third party or do we need as many third parties as want to spring up? And then from there, just go in any direction you want, because I want to talk about war. I want to talk about jobs. I want to talk about the environment. So just answer that first thing. Do we need more more third parties? And then just wherever you want to go from there.
1: Well, I'm from multi-party democracy, and I, I think it's fine to form uh, third parties, uh, but I think given that we're in a single plurality winner system right now, the non-sectarian independent left should have <clears throat> one party so we can really compete. And I believe the Greens have about 160 people in office around the country. Their local offices, occasionally we've got into state legislatures, and while that is just a drop in the bucket because there are over 500,000 elected officers in this country, it's more than any party on the left has had since the heyday of the Socialist Party. So that's the good news. The bad news is we're just a drop in the bucket. And I'm saying we should be electing thousands going into the 2020s. Now, the one thing the Green Party has that uh, these other people that talk about forming a third party have to confront is getting on the ballot. I mean, we're on the ballot in 22 states automatically, at this point, maybe it's twenty-three. And, you know, we expect to be on all 51 ballots, 50 states in the District of Columbia. And uh, in a lot of those, we will get enough votes that it will give us ballot access for the next two to four year election cycle, depending on the state. You know, most states it's one, two or three percent for the presidential candidate or another statewide candidate, or maybe the statewide, you know, like Secretary of State and the presidential candidate can help with coattails. Um, so That's, you know, even though I still believe we got to build this from the bottom up, the presidential campaign is important to get those ballot lines. Now, you know, the people that say, well, the Greens haven't got their act together, blah, blah, blah. All I can say is we've been around 35 years. There have been a lot of efforts at third parties. There was effort coming out of the Rainbow Coalition. Ron Daniels ran. He was executive director in uh, Jackson's campaign manager. He ran in 92. Uh, That's not around anymore. There was a women's party effort uh, in the early 90s, you know, led by, you know, Basically, Emily's list people. It was kind of an upscale effort. There was a Labour Party that you know had a lot of unions affiliate, but they weren't ready to really take on the Democrats, and that's gone. Uh, there was a new party, which became the Working Families Party, which is not an independent party, but an auxiliary to the Democrats. You know, they they run as Democrats, or where you can do fusion, they say vote for the Working Families Party line. Uh, where you have disaggregated fusion, like in New York, um, or and where it's aggregated, where you have both the Democratic and working families line on the same line like uh, Oregon, um, you know, your vote gets lost in the sauce as far as I'm concerned. Um, and in, in a case where it's disaggregated like New York, you know, what does the message send to the Democrats? The working family says you're sending them a progressive message. And I think that message is, yeah, we got progressives in our hip pocket because they won't vote against us. You know, they just vote for us on another line. That's fine because you total up the vote and we win. So uh, so I would say to the people that are saying, yeah, we need a party, but we need to start something different than the Greens, uh, look, we got the ballot lines, we have a, a program, you got an issue with the program, we can talk about it. The program's always being amended. It's an open party, and we need a united left. And I'm trying to promote that in my campaign, because I am seeking the ballot lines of independent progressive parties at the state level, like the progressive party in Oregon, like the Liberty Union and progressive parties in Vermont, or the Labor and Citizens parties in South Carolina and the Peace and Freedom Party in California. So I think we need to unite within a democratic structure. And I'll be the first to tell you about what the ways I think the Green Party can improve itself in terms of its financing, its structure, and its organizing. But let's use it uh, to make it better, rather than have competing efforts when we're in this single plurality-winner system where you know we're not only splitting votes that might go to Democrats, we're splitting them from each other. And diluting the impact we might have.
0: Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, your platform. Um, you know, I suppose maybe you know I had said pick one, pick any particular point, uh, but maybe since we're in the middle of a of a pandemic, maybe maybe that's the place to start. And and uh, with with healthcare, um, I know that that's foremost on on a lot of people's minds. You just mentioned that Joe Biden said he would, he would veto any Medicare for All proposal. Um, where are you on, on this?
1: Well, I'm for Medicare for All, but I, I wanna move from national health insurance to a national health service. So national health insurance means the single public payer, Medicare, would pay for all medically necessary services. But delivery would largely remain private, and so would the drug companies. And the problem with that is uh, they have incentive to uh, give extra tests and services uh, to maximize the income. A lot of the doctors are now in very corporate structures and hospitals that are trying to raise revenues. You get competition between hospitals, so they all get the latest MRIs. And we have more MRIs than we need in the local area, but not enough clinics in the low-income areas. So people, you know, like my neighborhood area on the south side, you got to walk two miles to get to the uh community health center downtown or up on the hill where the universities are. And so all the resources are up there and they got excess of some resources, but we don't have primary health care. In this neighborhood there are no doctors and there are no clinics. And and you know so so that's the problem with a, a national health insurance. Even if you know the single public payer was paying those people, they'd still be behaving the way they do. So we, what we want to do is go immediately to national health insurance, the kind of Medicare for all proposals that are on the table in Congress. But then over the next 10 years, build out a national health service, fully socialized medicine, so that the hospitals and clinics are publicly owned. The doctors and nurses and other health care providers and workers are public uh, employees and are salaried, not having your income based on how, many, how much revenue they can raise through fees for service which will be a cost control improvement and the doctors will be able to focus on care rather than maximizing income and satisfying cost accountants and so forth um, inside their hospital organizations. And then it will be democratically controlled by a federation of locally elected health boards. So it would be two-thirds elected by the public, one-third by the healthcare providers. And they would federate at the state and national level. And we'd also take over the pharmaceutical industry. Which is more interested in chronic conditions where they can keep making money—heart conditions, Viagra, you name it—that kind of thing, than uh, vaccines and preventive or and short-term treatments, the antivirals and the antibiotics. They don't do that research anymore. Eight, fifteen of the eighteen big pharmaceutical companies don't even do that anymore. So we do it through the National Institute of Health, and then they, when it's finally produced, you know, then they'll they'll sell it. But um, a lot of times those kind of medicines aren't very profitable for them. they're not interested, so they're not serving the public. so we got to bring that into the system
0: and we could we could point out also that uh, much of the research that is done is paid for by the public anyway,
1: right through the national Institutes of health, yeah, and it's done at universities and then it's you know the universities now you know patent it and then they try to make money in the market with the drug companies marketing it's a uh, it's a perverse system where Healthcare care becomes a buy-or-die commodity instead of a human right. So, uh, yeah, we're for Medicare for all, but we want a more expansive system, a kind of national health service that the U.K. has, even though the Tories there have underfunded it, and labor when uh, Blair was in there. Um, Costa Rica has that kind of system. Cuba does. Italy does. You know, the problem in some of these countries is not the structure of the, of the system. It's that they underfund it. I mean, Italy, for example, they they have a national health service uh, that everybody has access to, but they decided, in the interest of efficiency, to let private hospitals and doctors compete. And what that did, when you start that competition, is everybody, you know, tries to get as lean as possible, no excess capacity. So when the pandemic hit, hit, they didn't have the uh, medical supplies they needed, in the hospital beds or the staffing, and they got overwhelmed. And that's because they introduced market reforms. They've been doing that in the UK, too. So, you know, I'm pointing to say that other countries have done it, but in some cases they haven't done it the right way.
0: So when Joe Biden says they have it in Italy, but that didn't help them with this crisis, he's really not making a good faith argument.
1: Well, you know, there was a lot of uh, countries that had single payer systems at that time, like South Korea, like Taiwan, like uh, Singapore, like Hong Kong. And China, which is, they had destroyed their system early in Deng Xiaoping's administration, and then they started rebuilding it over the last 10 or 15 years. So about 95% of Chinese have access to a public health care system. So basically, they got coverage. So in those countries, they did had a much stronger and effective response. Um, Italy was behind the curve, and they were under-resourced. But, you know, Joe Biden just picked on Italy Uh but he didn't look at the whole picture. And the fact is, if we had a, a single-payer system, <clears throat> first of all, we would have taken the health, public health officials' advice, and you know, been prepared for a pandemic with enough, you know, ventilators and masks and personal protective equipment and hospital beds, and uh, staffing. And in our for-profit system, all these organizations in the healthcare system try to operate as lean as possible to maximize profit. And I include the nonprofits, so-called nonprofits, that uh, that those are building bureaucratic empires, paying you know armies of uh, you know executives six-figure salaries. So there's a lot of administrative waste, and you got the same thing in the uh, nonprofit insurance, like the Blue Cross system. I mean, when they, in fact, when the newspapers report on their finances every year, they call it profits, even though you know they're not profits; they have to pay taxes on. And they give you a list of the executives. And it's amazing how many damn vice presidents they got earning all that money. And uh, you wonder what the hell they're doing. Because when you do have a problem, you know, I had uh Blue Cross uh, Excelist here in New York when I was a Teamster. And it's, you know, you get an answer. You get one of them phone trees, electronic phone trees trying to get an answer solved. You know, what are all these people being paid all these high salaries doing?
0: Yeah. No. So and 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 i might point out too that um the connection to employment uh is is kind of kind of shifty i mean it's kind of sketchy that uh, so many people are in jobs that they either hate or in jobs that don't pay them enough but do give them health care or health insurance um, or at least give them some amount although the the premiums are going up and up and up so it isn't as beneficial to have that employee that employer based health self care but people are still holding you know grasping as tightly as they can these jobs which of course now we see are are just evaporating um which which i think is is a good jumping off point to talk about employment you're talking about a couple of things. Number one, you talk a little bit about worker-owned co-ops, which is a, a subject near and dear to me. And you're also talking about green jobs. You're talking about a lot of green jobs in a lot of sectors. So why don't you explain what your what your idea is for the Green New Deal and jobs?
1: Okay. Well, let me, let me first say, well, part of my Green New Deal is an economic bill of rights. And there are six rights there, rights to jobs, income, housing, healthcare, education, and a secure retirement. And a job guarantee would be like the Works Progress Administration during the uh, Depression, which didn't provide employment for everybody, but provided employment for millions. And those are projects that for the most part were designed locally, both community services, even cultural projects. They put, you know, artists and actors and painters to work. You know, we have murals to this day in a lot of places. And so, and then social services, child care, elder care, parks, and public works, infrastructure. And so they're designed mostly for the, you know, locally. There's some larger projects that the federal government organizes, big projects. And it's 90% funded by the federal government, 10% by the local government. So there's local buy-in and you you avoid boondoggles. And uh, we need to expand that to the point where, when you're unemployed and can't get a job in the private sector, you go to the employment office instead of the unemployment office and say, I want my job. And their job's on the shelf, their project's ongoing, and they plug you in. And if uh, they need you in a certain job, you don't have the training for they provide the training. That's the idea of a job guarantee. Um, now, in the eco-socialist Green New Deal budget that I put together uh, with a political economist named John Wren uh, between what we call the Green Economy Reconstruction Program, which is to get to zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions and 100% clean energy by 2030, not just in the power production sector, but in transportation, manufacturing, agriculture, and buildings across all sectors. Because if we just do clean energy but not transform our productive systems, energy is just 28% of our carbon footprint. So a serious climate action program has to transform transportation, manufacturing, agriculture, and buildings. Like we got to get off heating oil and gas for heating and cooling our buildings and do it with heat pumps, which are powered by electricity. And so that's a massive job in itself. So uh, between the Green Economy Reconstruction Program to do that and the Economic Bill of Rights to provide those rights, we have a 42000000000000 trillion 10-year program. And it's $27 trillion for the uh, Green New Deal reconstruction part. And uh, between those two programs, it's 38 million jobs, which uh, at the time we did that before the coronavirus depression we're going into, uh, the, the bottleneck was labor. It's not the technology we have. it. It's not finding the money we can raise it. It's finding the labor. That's, that's the bottleneck in trying to meet this 10-year time uh, timeline. So there's plenty of uh, work to do. And plenty of jobs for people that want to do it. And this nonsense we get from the corporations that if we shut down the oil and gas industry, we'll have unemployment. If we don't frack, we're going to have unemployment. There's a lot more jobs in retrofitting buildings with heat pumps and building solar and wind. We need to move from a servo mechanical grid, dependent on centralized power plants, to a smart digital grid, dependent on distributed sources of solar and wind, which is all over, not concentrated in one place. Um, there is plenty of work to do to build this out in the next 10 years. So, you know, jobs is not a problem if uh, we make the the investments in which I believe we're going to have to do, we should do coming out of this coronavirus depression, because depending on what the federal government does, and they're still putting together relief packages, uh, small business, half of them just had a month cash on reserve. And, you know, there's supposed to be loans going out that they get the that become grants if they keep their employees on payroll. But by the time the money reaches them, about half these small businesses are gonna be right. out of business. And you know, that's destroying the economy. And then people are not making money, they're getting a little twelve hundred dollar check. And who knows when. You know, th- those of us that got direct deposit with the IRS will get it sometime this month, but they say the checks will take months, even years to get out to people. So yeah. and that's you
0: know that don't pay the rent for a lot of people so or the mortgage so uh, it's really just gonna... like it's really Short... if, I, if I may hmm? it's really almost just like another another arm of the the business bailout the bank bailout because those checks are gonna be going straight to keep pay, to keep somebody from repoing your car or to pay your mortgage or to do any any number of things or cut the water and power off. Yeah, And so basically, it is it is still a business stimulus. I mean, because well,
1: and, and and then the Fed is open the floodgates so that uh, the financial sector, the big banks, the investors uh, will have plenty of money. Um, and its the theory, there is trickle down. But uh, if there's not demand because working people don't have the money, uh, they're not going to invest in you know restarting production. Right, they're going to invest in. Uh, rearranging who owns the productive assets we got to who owns the stocks? and uh, all that does is rearrange and further concentrate wealth. And that's where this last package is headed. Most of the money was for you know big industries like you know the airline industry. You know, my attitude about that is, yeah, they're cheap now. Let's nationalize them, bring them into a national transportation corporation that covers rails and air, integrates them, rebuilds them light rail trolley systems every city used to have between the 1890s and 1930s, builds high-speed bullet trains between cities, less need for air traffic, and then rebuilds and expands freight rails, electrifies all these rails so they're clean, powered by clean solar and wind energy, and then put more of the freight on the rails instead of the roads. I mean, that's part of our eco-socialist Green New Deal. So we call it eco-socialist because we need to do what we did during the World War II emergency. Federal government took over and planned through the Office of War Mo- Mobilization a quarter of the manufacturing capacity of the country in order to turn industry on a dime into the arsenal of democracy to arm the US, the UK, Russia to defeat the Nazis and the fascists. We need to do nothing less to defeat climate change. So that means public power, including the big fuel, you know, oil and gas companies, Exxon, Chevron, the Koch brothers. It means this National transportation, a rail corporation I talked about. It means public sector and manufacturing, because take steel. You know they use coke ovens to make steel, and they're starting to move toward electric arc furnaces, which don't release the carbon that coke ovens do. But they're not going to move to the electric arc furnaces and retire the coke ovens till they wear those coke ovens all out. Same thing with the utilities: mechanical, servo mechanical grids instead of digital grid. They're not going to build a digital grid when the certain mechanical grid still works. Um, cement, you know, we—that's five percent of the world's carbon footprint because they throw carbon cal, calcium carbonate into the cement to harden it. And so they heat it up. The calcium hardens the cement. The carbon goes into the atmosphere. You can make cement without calcium carbonate, but our factories are oriented toward the old way of doing it. So if we don't start building these new factories through the public sector. Uh, it's not going to happen. So we need you know, a public sector in manufacturing. Now that's the case where these Green New Deal factories, we can have them publicly owned but leased to worker cooperatives, which enables the workers to get the full fruit of their labor instead of what we have now under capitalism, you get a fixed wage. Any surplus value you create goes to the ownership class. So they're stealing your own property, and they, they supposedly want to protect property. They got organ institutionalized theft. That's what capitalism is, and the workers will be able to manage their labor process. So those are some of the things we want to do with the eco-socialist green new deal. And basically, like we had an office of war mobilization, uh, we need an office of climate mobilization to use this public sector to, to coordinate all the things we need to do to get uh, to zero to negative uh, carbon emissions by 2030. Because that's what the climate science carbon budgets say a rich country like the United States needs to do
0: if we're going to avert a real disaster with climate. Okay, so, um, you know, it's funny, part of the thing, some of the things that you're you're talking about when you're talking about the, um, you know, the, the employment element of the Green New Deal, um, sound like they would be extremely attractive to even old school conservatives, like your notion of, you know don't go to the unemployment office go to the employment office well you know that has been a you know a, a trumpet from you know the 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 gop forever yeah let's let's make sure we you know get people back to work a green new deal would put people to work in just the way they say perhaps though uh, not not with the, the backing of 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 the public uh, you know, the public sphere. Um, Let me ask you this. These ideas that you have, clearly they're well thought out. Um, They have sound logic and they have a historical precedent. Why have we not had these even incrementally introduced before? Why, Why has it taken... As to the brink of the collapse of civilization and the environment, that we have to start actually talking about these things and 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 maybe implementing a little bit of them. What has kept us? Capitalism, yes, but specifically.
1: Well, I, I think the two-party system of corporate rule, because these ideas do get a foothold in the liberal wing and the democratic party. And you know that's been the historic role of third parties to bring issues to the fore that the two parties won't deal with, like the Liberty Party and slavery, like the Populist Party and the immiseration of the farming, you know, the agrarian classes in this country after the Civil War, and then the Socialist Party with the working classes. So the New Deal picked up the Socialist Party's social insurance programs. Um, and then, you know, uh, now we got the Green New Deal, you know, that, that some of the Democrats picked up, Medicare for All. You know, that was an idea that actually came out of the uh, Socialist Party. Roosevelt uh, thought about it in the mid-30s, but the AMA was too much of an opposition, so he took it out of his, uh, you know, Second New New Deal, which was instituted in 1935 uh, under the threat both of a labor movement that was taking over factories and forming unions and also a uh, threat of a third party. You know, at that time, the uh, progressives in Wisconsin and the Labor, former Labor Party in uh, Minnesota between them had two governors, four senators, and 13 members of Congress, and there were, you know, labor and socialists elected to local office. The unions were passing resolutions for a Labor Party, and Roosevelt was worried. So that's why the Second New
0: Deal was much more uh, progressive than the First New Deal. I mean, you're talking about a, a two-party system that has managed to say well no no it's his fault no 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 it's her fault no no it's her fault no no it's his fault um that's why we can't get anything that's why we can't have nice things um because of this and and honestly it feels like just to me and not just to me but to others that the artifice the the facade seems to be cracking and it seems to me that more and more people are beginning to recognize holy crap they're really essentially the same party. Do you find that? Do you find that people are starting to realize? Wait a minute, this is they're playing piggy in the middle with the American people here.
1: Yeah, I, 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 you know, when I say that the Democrats pick it up and you know they take the brand and dilute the content, I want to give some props to Bernie Sanders because his Green New Deal was serious. It was sixteen point three trillion over ten years. Uh, he wanted to get to one hundred percent reduction in carbon emissions in the Power production and transportation sectors, and get the other three sectors by 2050. A little slower timeline than us, but and we looked at his numbers, and we think the only difference between his 16.3 trillion and our 27 trillion over 10 years for the uh, restructuring the economy part was the timeline. And you can, Bernie was an order of magnitude more than any of the other Democrats who said they had green new deals, and they were mostly subsidies to corporations to produce solar and wind. And some new standards and mandates, which the industries would fight and gum up and just slow down the whole process. So, um, and then Medicare for all, you know, that's been something he's pushed for for a long time. And people voted for that. I mean, you look at the exit polls, even the Biden voters want Medicare for all. And so uh, I'm encouraged by that because it shows these ideas are ideas whose time has come. Um, the problem is the Democratic Party. So. While the progressives, you know, there may be a third of the, well, they're even not even that in Congress. I was going to say of the electorate, you know, looking at the Sanders versus Biden vote. But in Congress there, you know, can really only count on about 25 of them. And and I would include AOC in those 25. But as you pointed out, she's adapting to the Democratic Party as it is very quickly. I mean, she's still in her first term. And uh, so, you know, what we're missing is an independent left that can't be taken for granted. You know, I got 5% of the vote running against Andrew Cuomo in 2014. He wanted to roll up the vote that year because he was thinking about running for president. He wanted to get more votes than his father, Mario Cuomo, ever got. He wanted to get more votes than when he first got elected in 2010, and he got less. And he looked at the results, and I was sitting there with 5%. So to compete for our voters, he had to adopt some of the things we were demanding that he had not supported, like a ban on fracking like a $15 minimum wage, like paid family leave. So, you know, that's the thing. If we have an independent left that can't be taken for granted, we can move the agenda. And, uh, of course, our goal is not just to uh, get the people in there to take some of our reforms. We want to replace them because, as we've been talking about, you know, they fight like cats and dogs in public over the cultural issues. And then behind closed doors, when it comes to satisfying their corporate paymasters, and that means economic and military foreign policy. And on that they're pretty much on the same page. Look at the attempt to overthrow the Venezuelan government. Yeah. You know, the democratic leadership is right there with Trump on that.
0: Yeah. And and I want to I want to pivot to that too because we've sort of touched on it a couple of times. Um and and on your website, uh your your campaign website, um which is HowieHawkins.us, um you talk about war economy you talk about militarism you talk about um trump obviously and and then we have this sort of this neoliberal everybody is okay with slaughtering yemenis everybody's okay with oh you know with coups against south american you know democratically elected south american leaders um and i want to kind of to me like they're all the same thing and um and and they also tie into militarized policing here which which you also talk about so i just want to i want to say i want to read the a paragraph um the last paragraph from Uh, A piece that was written by columnist Kurt Bardella in USA Today, and that was written on yesterday, uh, yesterday evening, or yesterday morning. Uh, It's titled, Oversight Erased, Supreme Court Hijack, Trump Turns the Presidency into a Dictatorship. Um, He ends by saying, and I know this is a spoiler, but By taking a wrecking ball to independent oversight, Trump has made the presidency into a dictatorship. At this point, the only recourse we will have left to save our democracy, repair the institutions of government, and restore accountability to the American people is to vote in November to save the soul of this nation. That is assuming Trump, the Republicans, and the Supreme Court let us. So we're in a position now where we've got a candidate Joe Biden, uh, for the Democratic Party, he's the presumptive nominee, but there's no guarantee that that's actually who's going to walk out of the convention. Uh, He might not even make it that far. But we do know that America is becoming increasingly militarized. Um, We have decided that we are okay with landmines. Uh, We are... Uh, actually expanding the use of, of anti-personnel devices, We have launched a uh, uh, with the USS Tennessee now carrying these mini nukes, these low-yield, they, n- low yield and they low yield is really a euphemism uh, for not killing as many people as you possibly could. Um, low yield nuclear warheads on on submarines. And um, the obvious desire of the Trump administration, to go after Venezuela, uh, obviously, you know, for the stated purposes of of being greeted as liberators and freeing the Venezuelan people, which is what we love to do. We love to free people, uh, whether they've asked for it or not and and at home, when these things begin to happen, if we were to go after Venezuela, if we were to you know get ourselves embroiled in a really nasty fight in the Middle East, in Iran, for example, there will be a war, uh, an anti-war movement, however anemic it might start out, um, but we're looking at a situation where um, the America that is possible, both under Biden and Trump, is quite a bit different than the one I thought we were going to have when I was a kid. Um, tell us about the military, the militarization both of the United States' foreign policy and here at home on the streets of of America.
1: Well, yeah, so Trump is such a monster that people say anybody but Trump, which now means Biden. But we have to realize this imperial presidency that Trump inherited was uh, enhanced in the Obama administration in which Biden was the vice president. Take the drone strikes, which Obama escalated, started under Bush. He had what he called Terror Tuesdays. When he ran for re-election in 2012, he leaked to the New York Times a secret program so he could look like, you know, a strong military guy. And they'd sit there on Tuesday and decide who they were going to kill. You know, judge, jury, and executioner. That's totally against our tradition of, you know, uh, rule by law. And then they had signature strikes. So if they saw a bunch of young men in the Middle East congregating, they just assumed they were terrorists. And they, you know, strike them with a drone. And the whole program's created more So-called terrorists who are angry at at the United States around the world. They do public opinion polls. People fear the United States more than any other country uh, because of our warlike attitudes. Joe Biden, where the hell was he during Vietnam? You know, he got deferments, but he wasn't part of the anti-war movement. You know, he supported the Iraq war. He lies now about how he turned. He turned a lot later than he turned when it became politically unpopular. His position on the Palestinian question is Israel right or wrong? Uh, he hadn't said a word about these coups. They, they had a coup in Honduras in the first years of the uh, Obama administration with Biden as vice president. They took this guy Zelaya because he had raised the minimum wage. They grabbed him in his pajamas and threw him out of the country, and they called it a constitutional coup, which the United States backed. And now the death squads run rampant in Honduras. Um, and then the nuclear modernization program started under the Obama administration. You know, we are now building hypersonic strategic nukes. They're six times faster than the old ones. And Russia has responded, and China's responding, and the other nuclear powers. Because uh, now, instead of 20 minutes to figure out if what the radars are telling you is actually a launch against you, you got to launch in anticipation the other guy's getting ready to launch. So that's why the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is moved their Doomsday clock the closest to midnight it's ever been. That's Joe Biden. That's no solution to this militarism. You know, if we want, you know, what I'm advocating is the United States should stop being the world's military uh, empire with over 800 military bases and special operations operating in over 100 countries with all kinds of surveillance and assassinations and, you know, quick hits and occupying a bunch of countries, active wars in about seven countries, over 800 military bases, instead of being the world's military empire, try to be, you know, basically protecting the uh, assets of global corporations based in the United States, we should be the world's humanitarian superpower. We should get a Green New Deal uh, going in this country and then extend it into a global Green New Deal. Cut the military budget—I'm calling for 75 percent cuts—and put that into a global Green New Deal. Let's make friends instead of enemies. Let's build peace instead of war, which is a whole industry in itself. The arms manufacturers love war, because they can sell more of their stuff. The arms industry is something we should nationalize. So we, it's based on what we need, not what uh, the arms uh, industry can make for profits. So we need a whole new approach. And Trump, I mean, he is terrible. And the Democrats, Biden should crush him. I mean, this coronavirus thing is Trump's Katrina. I mean, his obvious incompetence and his lying about stuff and his stupid advice and all these hearings. I mean, the polls right now have you know Biden ahead by 10%. And as this depression goes on and more people get sick, I mean, it's possible Trump could win because the Democrats know how to, you know, snatch victory from the, jo- I mean, defeat from the jaws of victory. And they did it in 2016. I mean, that was a terrible campaign that Clinton ran. She wanted to make it about Russia. Americans didn't care about Russia. Trump was a target-rich environment. He was an open racist, a serial sexual assaulter, a corporate criminal, a failed businessman. And a liar every time he opened his mouth. And instead she's making them like he's a he's a stooge of Russia. Which whether he is or not, people didn't care about that. You know, you gotta talk to what people's issues are. And she just did not appeal to the, you know, the middle and low income people of this country who are suffering or struggling economically. Yeah. You know, there's some teamsters that I was working with at UPS at the time who voted for Trump to shake things up. And they didn't like Trump. They just looked at Clinton, and she looked like you know upper management in UPS, you know, and they just couldn't see. They just didn't like her.
0: Yeah, she'd she'd be a great human resources manager, I think. That's sort of you know condescending. Yeah, um, well, and, and 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 to the point that you make about what people cared about, it's shocking that she didn't take a cue from her own husband's nineteen ninety two election when the catchphrase was uh, to 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 george h w bush it's the economy stupid do you remember that people had yeah. t-shirts that said it's the economy stupid because i can't even remember what what bush senior was trying to make the election about but um i think crack babies probably um you know whatever and people wanted to know that their their wallets their pocketbooks were going to get some some healing and Bill Clinton came in and said, I'm going to make every, he, he basically pulled a Reagan. He said, I'm going to make everything better. You're going to feel better. Life's going to be easier. Uh, and in his case, the economy did improve during the nineties uh, for, for for some. Um, but the, uh, the, yeah, that 2016 race, I don't even know what that, uh, she got some bad advice. Let me put it that way. If she had a I know who uh, who gave her this 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 fairy tale to push, but it didn't didn't work out too well. It was and- the
1: leadership of the Democratic Party, if you remember, while Trump got the message, it's the economy, stupid. Trump is lying out both sides of his mouth about how he's going to help working people. You know, he didn't. It was the Trump tax cuts that screwed working people. He's cutting every program, you know, public service that working people use. <clears throat> he's going to cut Social Security and uh, Medicare. He told that to the Davos crowd, you know, the, the elites uh, just when, right before the first year, early this year, right before the coronavirus thing broke out. So, you know, he he told a bunch of lies, but that was his message. The Clinton message was, I mean, forget even her statement about the deplorables, which was insulting to people. She, she had people like Ed Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania, and Chuck Schumer, the leader in the Senate, saying for every... Blue-collar worker we lose in the Midwest, we're going to get two white suburban women in, in, you know, Philadelphia, you know, where those women voted for Trump and those workers stayed home. Um, So the whole Democratic Party, you know, their thing is, you know, and Jesse Jackson was telling them this in the 80s, you got to expand your base. The working class, the people of color are voting in low numbers. That's where you get more votes. Instead, the Democrats always move to the center to try to pull over some independents that are swinging. And you know the fact is they're less swing voters than ever. You know people are either one camp or the other. That's the way the Democratic Republican divide is now. And uh, so you know they, yeah, the whole Democratic leadership, they, they didn't. They're too out of touch with the people. You know to say that you know they're gonna get the suburban people. Don't worry about the workers.
0: Yeah. So what do we risk? Uh, Joe Biden. Let's assume that he survives uh, the. Uh The the convention, let's assume that he makes it through to October, November. Um, I I can't see it happening, frankly. Um, I I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who, you know, they are credibly uh, predicting that Trump is going to, you know, bulldoze, uh, steamroll Biden um, just because of his, his style. I mean, his, his pugilistic uh, bullying style appeals to certain people and it appealed in 2016. And if, if Biden has to go up against him uh, verbally, you know, uh, you know, in a non-scripted format, um, people aren't sure he's going to, Biden can handle it. What's, what are we um, risking with another four years of Trump? Just, you know, from your your you know your perch what do you see
1: well i think more authoritarian government uh more destruction of public services and uh regulations you know from epa to osha um cuts in medicare and social security because we'll be in a fiscal crisis that coming out of this coronavirus crisis um it'll be a disaster but you know i i it's just hard to see how he could win, given how he's messing up this coronavirus thing. you know I think you know even his supporters kind of see that you know he's he's really blown it, and so it's really hard for Trump to lose i mean I heard uh uh james carville that that Louisiana old democratic advisor to Clinton say the best thing Biden could do is just shut up, stay out of the way, and let Trump destroy himself because you're right. They get in the debate and you know, I, I I get so angry at Biden. He was asked by Chuck Todd uh weekend before last, you know, do you think Trump has blood on his hands for what he's done in this coronavirus crisis? And Biden says, oh, I think that's too harsh. You know, Trump does have blood on his hands. He's getting people killed. He's killing us. And instead of going after him, he's making excuses or, you know, we all got to unite. He's the president. You know, is he trying to beat Trump? So I think you're right. He's not a great candidate. But, uh, you know, man, I would love to be on the debate stage with Trump. I mean, I had to hit him with things like, uh, hey, Trump, when's Mexico going to pay for your stupid wall, you big liar? You know, the the moderators won't ask that question, but I'll just turn to them and whatever question they ask me, I'll say, Trump, I want this answer. When's Mexico going to pay for your stupid wall, you big liar? You know, and just hit him with stuff like that. You know, give him some of his own medicine because, you know. He he don't you can't do a rational argument with him. He's got to point out how he's a liar and you know explain that to us please.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about next steps for your campaign uh for the Green Party and what what your most optimistic uh projection is uh, for 2020. Uh starting with um so where is your campaign what do you have left to do? You have got you still have to secure the official nomination, right, of the, of the, of the Green Party? Yes. So what, what are the next steps?
1: Well, we go through the states. We're leading in the primaries. We're continuing. Uh, and then the delegates will make a decision at our convention, which was scheduled for Detroit July 9 to 12, but now will probably be uh, virtual. So, you know, there's a lot of work uh, adapting to that. We're also, now that we can't be out on the street petitioning, we're uh, communicating with state governments, saying you got to give us relief, and you should put us on a ballot in most states where we've been on the ballot for several election cycles. Um, and if we don't give relief, we're taking them to court. So I've, I've pulled together a team of lawyers in my campaign, and we're helping the states. Um, so, and then we get into the general election campaign. You know, I'm I'm going to be hitting Trump and Biden on on what they're doing short and what we really need, and appealing to the progressives in the Democratic Party, you know, if you want to vote for Medicare for All, for a Green New Deal, College for All, an Economic Bill of Rights, Joe Biden is not your candidate. And, you know, if you're a Sanders socialist and you vote for Joe Biden, you get lost in the sauce. They don't know what you're for. You vote for the Green Party and they know what that vote means. And then we use that, whatever vote we get is leverage going forward. And I think, you know, it's really hard to tell what will happen. Anything could happen given the economic problems as well as the health problem we got right now, and people may be looking for answers, and people in you know those progressive Democratic party I, I don't see an organized break, but I see a trickle out, and maybe it'll become more of a more of a i don't know I don't want to say a flood, but a, a flow out of the Democratic Party to our campaign. that's what we're hoping as well. you know the primary people we are trying to get interested is the people that vote in low numbers, working class people, people of color and youth. And that's the kind of thing that uh, you got to do at the grassroots level, door to door, face to face, and we're going to have a disadvantage in this campaign. But that's the long range future of the Green Party. We can become a major party and force in American politics by being the class, the party of the working class, as well as everybody who loves peace, justice, labor and the environment. And uh, so that's the long term goal, you know, getting those non-voters motivated. The way you do that is you talk to them and don't go in and preach, but listen and let them tell you what their issues are and then find ways of working with them and building relationships and trust and, you know, getting them engaged. And then you can talk, you know, to politics, you know, as activists and Greens are guilty of this, you know, progressives generally, you know, we, we say, oh, you know, our group's all white. Let's go to the black community and get some folks. And they go in with a leaflet and preach and they don't know who you are. And, you know, why should they trust you? Um, so, you got to go in and, and talk to people, listen, build relationships. That's what organizers, you know, union organizers, community organizers know. And I think uh, if we're going to build a, a major party on the left, that's what we got to know. So, I think that's a longer term project. So, in terms of what we can do this year, you know, first of all, in, in every state, it's usually one, two, or 3%. Uh, if you get that in the presidential race or another st- statewide election, uh, you get a ballot for the next election cycle. So, that's one objective. If we get to five percent, we get public funding for our 2024 election that uh, is in a fund that the Democrats and Republicans haven't used since 2008 when Obama refused to use it after saying he would. McCain had to use it because he didn't have enough money, and he was the last one to use it. Hmm. And I don't know what the numbers are, but it's tens of millions of dollars. Well, for the, the major parties, it's over 100 million. We would get a proportional share based on uh, you know what we vote we got above five percent. Um, If we get to 15 percent, they'll say, we should have been in the debates uh, that the Commission on Presidential Debates organizes, which is not a government agency like it sounds. It's a private corporation the Democrats and Republicans control. So there's a scale of objectives on up to winning, and then we'll really have problems because we have to find the people to put in the administration. How are you going to take on a military industrial complex, and even Trump, who you don't know what he really wanted to do. He said he wanted to get out of these foreign wars and get out of NATO and all that. And he's going the opposite direction. He's got more troops in the Middle East than, we, than when he started. <clears throat> but they are a power unto themselves. So, you know, if it got to that point, you know, if I won, it would be on a, you know, a mandate. It'd be real clear what the people wanted. And, you know, that we would take and, and try to keep them mobilized and put the pressure on Congress. And on the various agencies of government to say, you know, let's do what the people ask
0: for. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about this five percent. Um, I I I won't uh, I won't lie. I preach to people. I'm, I'm in Massachusetts, uh, a solidly blue state, and I talked to a lot of people. I said, listen, uh, Hillary is going to win Massachusetts, if you believe. In the things that the Green Party stands for, vote for Jill Stein. You know, give the Green Party a chance to get that five percent, even if you don't love the positions of the Green Party, but believe that there should be an avenue for for the ideas you do believe in to make it into the public discussion. Um, you know, you know that that Hillary's going to grab. You know. Um, Massachusetts, New York, California. You know, you you're you know, your usual suspect states. Um so it doesn't it's really not a danger to vote Green Party. Um and it might mean that we have more more people at the table next time. Now, obviously that did not my my um proselytizing for a third party did not go over well. Uh, I think that maybe Jill Stein might have gotten 1% in Massachusetts. It was it was very little. Um, but uh, this year, do you think uh, that you can attract enough Bernie bros? And Bernie, uh, I have a, I have a friend, a good friend, and she refers to herself as a Bernie broad. So I didn't make up the turn. She calls herself that. But Bernie bros and Bernie sisters, um, do you think that you have enough to significantly improve on 2016's results if you can reach them
1: yeah not yet i think there's potential i mean this year is with the coronavirus it just hard to figure what's going to happen and how angry people are going to be and uh you know how biden you know runs how trump runs it's uh you know very contingent now the 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 dynamic before the coronavirus was trump is crazy everybody on the democratic side wants him out and it was going to be very hard for us um now i think it's a little more fluid since biden you know who's pretty conservative on the democrat among the democratic candidates uh you know it, it opens the door for progressives to come to us um and you know it's up to us to try to Get the word out to them. Uh, run a credible, serious campaign, substantive campaign. Uh, work the uh, major media, political reporters around the country. Give them real substance, stuff they can write about. Then they got to fight with their editors and producers to actually cover us. That's been my experience. You know, the reporters like us, and they want to write stories, and then they get blocked by higher ups. Um, but you know, get some coverage there, and. Uh, a lot will depend on what progressives do. You know, are they just going to resign themselves, settle for Biden, and do nothing but go out and vote? Or are they going to keep fighting for Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and the things they were fighting with Sanders for?
0: Or are they going to stay home?
1: Well, yeah, some might stay home, but I think there'll be less of that than in 2016 because Trump then was, uh, well, everybody thought Clinton was going to win. Yeah. And uh, didn't seem as urgent. Now, a lot of people think Trump's going to win. So I think people will come out, although we, we got to fight for the right to vote. I mean, I think that's an issue. You know, I'm calling for universal mail-in balloting in November, given where we are with this coronavirus. Um, and Trump is absolutely opposed to that, and the Republicans, because they figure the less people vote, uh, the better they're going to do. So I think- They've not said as much. And that will affect the outcome. How many people get to vote? Um, so there are just so many variables. You know, like I say, anything could happen and we're going to, you know, do the best we can to get the biggest vote we can. And you whatever vote we get,
0: use that going forward. Um, do you f- have any concerns that uh, Trump will use this crisis as an excuse to um, delay or cancel elections in 2020?
1: I think that'd be political suicide for him. I think even his supporters will say, well, that's going too far. You think? You know, McConnell and, and the elites might say, yeah, but, you know, rank and file Trump people. I, I'm i in upstate New York. I run into a lot of them. They are, not, they are not, you know, callous elites like Trump and McConnell. You know, they're people, they got their social issues. You know, up here it's guns. For some, it's abortion. For some, it's gay rights. I mean, you mentioned conservatives. There are people who are socially conservative that I've worked with on public power campaigns here in, in New York. You know, on economic class issues, a lot of the social conservatives are progressive. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we can we can win their votes. And, you know, some of them will tolerate my progressive positions on the social issues because they're more worried about the economic issues.
0: Um, so... But they're not going to go with being having their, their right to vote taken away. They're not going to go for that.
1: Yeah, they're going to say, "Wait a minute, no, that's not what we what we bought in for." Okay. Yeah, I I think they're going to be more subtle. You are going to make it hard to vote. They're going to have voter ID. They're going to uh, deny you the right to do a mail-in ballot, so you have to go out and risk getting the coronavirus, like they just did in Wisconsin. That's what the Republicans are doing, hmm. and uh, so that's something we got to watch and and struggle over uh, between now and November.
0: Well, between now and November, or now and and, uh, July, um, how can people find out more about the Green Party and about Howie Hawkins?
1: Well, if you Google Green Party, you'll find the Green Party of the United States. Uh, You'll find the various state parties um, and some of your local parties, depending on where you live. And my campaign campaign website is www.howiehawkins.us, Howie spelled H-O-W-I-E. Hawkins yeah. is H-A-W-K-I-N-S. It's HowieHawkins.us. And there you can find a lot more about, you know, our positions on the issues. Uh, you can find out what we're doing. You can sign up and get, you know, regular communication from us about what's going on. You can volunteer. You can donate. You can do everything there. You can get the there are links to the Facebook and Twitter and Instagram on there. T-shirts. So, yeah, we got T-shirts and mugs and uh, campaign buttons Zoom right. bumper stickers and yard signs and all that stuff.
0: Gotcha. Well, I I have to tell you, um, I'm looking at the clock here, and I I probably I, – I think I told you 30 minutes, so we've gone uh, significantly over that. And I thank you for it. And I feel like we've still only scratched the surface of, A, what you know, um, and, B, what you have um, sort of formulated – as as solutions to some of these really vexing problems um so and of course many of those are described on the on the website um so we'll just uh we'll leave it at that but um, i'll put a link to your to your site in the uh the show notes uh for this this piece and um i guess we'll just uh wish you stay safe um stay healthy and um and I'll, I'll send I'll send you a link to the show when it's live.
1: All right. Well, I enjoyed the conversation. You stay safe too. Everybody should stay safe. And uh, I, you know, appreciated the opportunity to
0: speak. Thanks, Howie. All right. Take care. You too. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, writer, editor, and producer, Jason Velasquez. As always, our music was by the Iron Age Mystics, and I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Growl. Take care.